This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at afsp.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Now it's time for one final installment in our look at how community investment and economic development could work better for Chicago residents. We've been diving into that topic for Reimagine Chicago, our series with the University of Chicago's Center for Effective Government at the Harris School of Public Policy. After hearing from two current city officials yesterday, let's turn to a former player in city government. Amea Pawar served as alderman of the 47th Ward on the northwest side from 2011 until 2019, when he decided not to run for a third term. He was the first and only Asian-American alderman in Chicago. And since he left office, he's been thinking a lot about how to build a more equitable city. He's a fellow at Open Society Foundations and the Economic Security Project. And his forthcoming book is called Organized Capital, The Case for Public Banks. Amea, why do you think a public bank would help Chicagoans? Think about the conveyor belt of success that the New Deal created about a century ago. The government invested in in jobs that paid enough to live, to save, and the government then per backstop mortgages such that people could buy a home and then create some generational wealth. Except that this conveyor belt was primarily created for white people and we manufactured the largest middle class. What undergirds the manufacturing of a middle class is access to credit. And so there's good credit, which is home loans and business loans, and there's bad credit, payday loans, auto title loans. One is extractive, that being the latter, the former being something that generates wealth. And that's how we've really created ladders for economic mobility is access to good credit. Banks provide that credit. And fundamentally what banks do is that they create new money out of thin air. And when new money flows through a community in the form of home and business loans, and it does so systematically over and over again, you create wealth. I saw this in my own community where banks repeatedly lent to people to buy homes and start businesses. There's, there's a reason why Lincoln Square and North Center did so well. On the inverse side, you could also see what happens when banks deny money creation to communities systematically. You know, you have extraction in the form of payday loans and currency exchanges, and you do see less homeownership and less business. So to me, banking is the cornerstone of economic development, and there is no grant, no tax incentive, no one-off project that can match what a bank can do when they create money systematically. So you think that a public bank could increase opportunities then for minorities and, and people at the lower end of this socioeconomic ladder you speak of? It has to because over the last 40 years, banking deregulation has allowed 
banks to get bigger in asset size and smaller in terms of footprints. They've been closing branches all over the country. Vast swaths of America do not have a single bank branch in them. And so what ends up happening is when you lose a bank, it's like having land that is farmable without any access to water. What a public bank would do is be a gap filler and make sure that communities that have been systematically been denied access to capital, capital. And that's what a public bank would do. So what would be the best mechanism then for this, a state-run bank or a city-run bank? I think it could be either or. Obviously, the state hands out charters in the same way that the federal government can all do that. Um, I think a city-run bank would be ideal because I think, in, for example, in the city of Chicago, you have lots of communities that don't have access to capital. And we've seen this play out over the last year. When the federal government announced Paycheck Protection Program loans, unbanked communities or communities that had little access to formalized banking institutions weren't able to get loans to their businesses. When Congress made it possible for stimulus checks to be rolled out three times over the last year and a half, people without bank accounts waited for you know weeks or months to get a paper check in the mail. So I think a city-run public bank could solve some of the capital gap issues, could make sure that there's equitable access to financial services, and most importantly, recognize that it is the city's loss when you have tens of thousands of people who rely on currency exchanges and other alternative financial mechanisms just to access their money, because that's money that gets extracted out of their incomes. And low to middle income households lose up to 10% of their incomes a year just cashing their check and accessing basic services. That's money that's not flowing to the community. That's tax money that's not flowing in terms of sales taxes. It's extractive. It denies people savings and it denies them long-term wealth. And that's only because we don't have formalized access to banking and banks don't want to serve these communities. That's where the public can fill in. You've also argued that postal service banking is something that we should consider. What is that? The post office up until the mid to late 1960s had postal banking, meaning you could go to the post office to mail a letter and deposit your paycheck. The banking lobby worked really hard to rid the post office of these services. But, you know, right now, over 60% of census tracts in America do not have a single bank branch in them, but do have a post office. So really what we could do is restart this service such that the postal office can allow you to deposit your money, save your money, pay bills, get small loans, and process your basic financial transactions in a way that leverages their existing capacity. So, you know, postal banking is imagine just putting a bank inside the post office, something we already used to do. What about universal basic income? You've argued for UBI. Could it be seen as quote-unquote community investment? When you think about the racial, gender, and ethnic wealth gaps that exist, people are often talking about, well, what do we need to do to solve these gaps? And I think there's two sides of the equation here. First, on the income side, because if you don't have enough money coming in, creating wealth is going to be impossible. Um, And so a basic income, a guaranteed income could help people with their basic needs to make sure that covers the any speed bumps they encounter in terms of their work. And it provides real dignity and an opportunity for them to save and make choices about what they want to do with their life. If you stabilize the income side of the equation, 
that is community development because people do invest those dollars by spending them. And if you kind of create that stability over time, now you can start working on the wealth side of the equation. And my point in saying all this is that it creates the stability to make all of that possible. I think cash works. We've seen it work over the last year and a half with the pandemic. And I believe that we should make cash a part of the social safety net and make it permanent. And I think there's lots of ways to do that. The child tax credit should be made permanent. So we have a lot of things in the hopper right now. We just need to make sure that cash is part of the safety net. Well, in our Reimagine Chicago series, we've actually been examining how our systems and our institutions work in the city and how they could work better for residents. So from your perspective as a former alderman, where is economic development working for the average person in Chicago, and where is it broken? Economic development is working in communities where they have access to capital, and capital drives investment. So going back to that banking conversation is when banks lend systematically, that new money flows through a community. And when new money flows through a community and you have wealth, you have people with equity in their homes, they have businesses that prosper, that creates more stable tax revenues, that leads to more government investment in those communities and parks and schools. It's a stabilizing force. When you zoom out and look at communities where there is very little access to capital and wealth creation happening from banking, you also see a whole lot of government disinvestment. And so that is why I, after you know serving eight years in the council and looking at all the tools that I had available to me, whether it was low-income housing tax credits, TIF, new market tax credits, subsidies, these are all tools that work on the margins at best. They will never produce the kind of systematic change we need in communities that have been left behind by banks and by government. If we're serious about equity in the city, then we got to make sure that there's access to credit and it's equitably available to everybody. So, we saw the WBEZ article from last summer about, you know, where banks lend and where they don't lend. Places like Lincoln Park saw seven or eight times more lending than all majority black communities combined in Chicago. You know, that is how you systematically deny communities long-term prosperity. If we're not willing to tackle that, no amount of bank philanthropy grants can solve that. They're all one-offs. Amaya, what types of so-called human infrastructure do you think could help Chicago thrive? That's a really great question. Um, so I'll give you one a quick example. Five out of six kids in Chicago live in uh, a childcare desert. So there's a lot of rhetoric about, you know, not there not being enough labor as the economy restarts. But, you know, the truth is, is like if you have five out of six kids living in childcare deserts, meaning they have less than three options in their zip code, you have a lot of people who want to work, who can work, that can't work because they don't have a viable option. So what is wrong with establishing a public option for childcare, meaning publicly run childcare facilities? that would be available in neighborhoods um, that wouldn't be necessarily have to be free, that could turn a small profit or be run as a nonprofit. You know, there are examples of housing as being considered as infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Today, we finance most of our affordable housing 
by giving rich people tax credits to purchase. And we use that money from the tax credit purchase to fund affordable housing. Creative system, fine. But it produces just 100,000 units a year nationally, and we need 7 million, right? So what I mean by saying all this is that if we think about infrastructure, we need a public option for housing, a public option for broadband, a public option for childcare, public options in ways that fill market failures for services that people need but can't access, that the market won't fill, that the public should. And these are the kinds of things that I think we could finance locally that could turn revenue so they don't necessarily have to be losses in terms of a budget perspective, but also would create lots of jobs and create more sustainable and resilient communities. We've also talked quite a bit on this series about TIFs. Those are tax increment financing districts. Before we get any further, though, I just want to let David Merriman from UIC give us a little refresher. So a TIF is an area that the city designates under state law. And in that area, as the economic development occurs, as property values increase, the property tax revenue that's generated from the increase in property values is pumped back into the area and used exclusively for economic development. You were a critic of TIFs during your time on the council, but I'm curious where you're at with it now. Do you think TIFs need to be abolished, maybe reformed? Yeah, I was a critic of it, and I also got a lot of credit for using TIF locally in my community for public schools, parks, and libraries. But David hit on the critical point there, which is TIFs work when property values increase. And so, of course, TIFs in, say, Lincoln Square, Ravenswood, Northside communities, where property values have historically increased, generate lots of money and make it possible for aldermen like me when I was in the council to invest millions of dollars to build an addition to Coonley School or to plow millions more into building a boathouse. It was great for me and my constituents and the city, but the truth is it perpetuated inequity because, and I was clear about this with my constituents back then as well, which is I'm going to do my job for us locally, but just know that our TIFs perform well because our property values increase. And if the goal of tax increment finance or any economic development tool is to lift up communities where the financial system or government has left them behind, then you need to have um, a redistributive effect, meaning the only way in my mind TIFs could be equitable is if you TIF the entire city and the money that you collected from the TIFs went to communities that needed the most. Otherwise, what you end up with is these geographic pools of capital that work only in places where things are already going well, and then in time really perpetuate and heighten the inequality. Before we wrap, Amea, I do want to ask a few questions about politics. So in the first part of Reimagine Chicago, we talked about the benefits and the drawbacks of the aldermanic system. We talked about the shape of the wards, uh, their size and number, we talked about the powers that aldermen have uh, vis-a-vis the mayor. So I wonder, when you think big picture about the role that aldermen play in Chicago, what changes do you think would create a better system? I don't think that there is a silver bullet here. It's kind of like what we talk about with the elected school board, right? The mayor is saying, well, we don't need more politics uh, for schools, but we have 50 aldermen for 26% of your tax bill. 
and no elected representation for 50% of your tax bill. So what do we want as a city? Do we want more centralized control and a bureaucrat downtown somewhere making decisions? Or do you want local representation? Each one of these models has their pitfalls and benefits. But I think fundamentally, I think Chicago has been governed like a bunch of fiefdoms. And that's also because people have wanted it that way. Mm -hmm. So if we want to do better, I would encourage Chicagoans, we got to do better first, and then our politics will get better. Thinking of aldermen, do you think they should spend more time legislating and less time acting as these mini mayors of their wards? I mean, I spend a majority of my time focused on citywide legislation. But let me also tell you that my staff was 120% invested in the local stuff and kind of making sure that we keep everything locally on the rails. Because if I had ignored local issues, I wouldn't have been able to pass the legislation I I was able to. Mm -hmm. A good way to think about this is, you know, expanding the size of some of these aldermanic offices so you have more staff, so you can kind of be more responsive to citywide and local issues. And I think fundamentally, I think Chicago, again, I think this is more of an existential question cultural question, we have to ask ourselves, what do you want? Because it seems to me you want both. And if you want both, that is possible. But then we have to think about our current system a little differently. Could block wards help? Should we move to block wards instead of how they're gerrymandered now? You know, I always find it curious when redistricting is brought up in the context of political dysfunction. Because I see lots of really wealthy donors plow millions of dollars into redistricting reform efforts because they think that is a cure Mm -hmm. for the political dysfunction. I always find it interesting when reformers focus on process and structure and are successfully able to show that progressive reforms, things like, you know, making the wealthy pay their fair share, are somehow radical and too big. So... I'm always a little wary of the reformers. That is former Chicago alderman Amea Pawar. He is a fellow at Open Society Foundations and the Economic Security Project. And his forthcoming book is called Organized Capital, The Case for Public Banks. Amea, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that's today's Reset. All month on the podcast, we're bringing you our series, Reimagine Chicago, where we ask, how does Chicago work and how could it work better for residents? We're tackling city government, community investment, public safety, and schools. And take a few seconds to leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.